Uh, good morning. Uh, let me introduce myself because I think there's quite a few here who don't know me. Uh, my name is Brian and I work amongst the SMAC congregations here. Uh, you might not always see me, often you won't see me in the SMAC one service because usually I'm up there doing the youth group. Uh, but today uh, I'll be bringing God's word to you. And as Patrick mentioned earlier, uh, there, will be, there should be an outline in your Bibles. A, you can just open it and you can see an outline. The outline will help you follow uh, the sermon. Uh, as we begin, uh, if you could do one thing for me, could you close your eyes for a moment? Uh, don't fall asleep, the sermon hasn't started yet, but I want you to close your eyes, just for a moment, and I want you to imagine that what you're seeing now is your normal line of vision. Now, try, remember what you're seeing is your everyday experience, try buttoning up your shirt. Okay, fairly easy, isn't it? Okay. Try driving your car. Okay, one more. Try try crossing a suspension bridge across a canyon. Oh, and with no railings. Okay, let's try a different thought experiment. You can you can open your eyes now. And I want you to try to see as hard as you can with your own eyes. Try seeing the back of your own heads. It's, it's impossible, isn't it? It's not just that you can't you see blackness like when you do when you close your eyes. It's the complete absence of any visual experience at all. Now, as we walk through John's Gospel, Jesus has made it clear that as far as he's concerned, that is what we are like, spiritually speaking. We are in complete darkness. We cannot see. And thus, we are in danger. You know, you can just about fumble around to button up your shirt and look respectable. But that isn't going to help you on the federal highway or when you're trying to play Indiana Jones on the suspension bridge. And we can just about fumble around to cover our inner lives and look respectable. But that isn't going to help us when... Jesus says this, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love their darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And that's what John 3, verse 19 to 20 says. We are not only in darkness, we love it. We can't just see, we proudly declare the fact. And it's the complete absence of any God-focused experience. Now earlier, in John chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, we discover that the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not recognize him. What a shock! You know, how, how can this be true? Surely, if anyone was going to recognize Jesus, it would be his own people, the Jews, wouldn't it? They are the ones soaked in Old Testament scripture. Surely they knew the prophecies about the Messiah inside out. They are the ones with the rich history. Surely they would recognize the words of God when they see one. 
They are the chosen people. Surely they would recognize the God they worship. But in chapters 5 to 8, we see that this is not the case. They are of this world. They fail to understand. They oppose Jesus. The physical descendants of Abraham turn out to be the children of the devil. They are in darkness. They cannot see. Now at this point, it doesn't matter if you were a Jew reading or hearing this gospel in a corner of the Roman Empire in AD 100, or if you are a non-Jew reading or hearing this gospel in the city centre of the Malaysian Empire in 2011. Because either way, both of you will just throw up your hands in despair. You know, if these Jewish leaders don't get it, what about me? If these Jewish teachers are blind, then how can I see? You know, it's like discovering that you know Stephen Hawking doesn't really know physics, or that Lee Chong Wei can't really play badminton. You know, if they're in the dark, what more? I. And John now begins to answer that question. And he does it characteristically by getting us to look at Jesus, the light of the world, once again. And looking at Jesus is never going to be a neutral exercise. See, we are either going to see or we are going to be blinded. So let's pay attention to God's word. And if you've closed your Bibles at this point, then I strongly encourage you to open them again to page 1079 to John chapter 9 as we consider how we can truly see and know God. And John begins by telling us about a miraculous sign. A miraculous sign. Verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now here's a man who has never seen light. You know, he's been born blind. And this isn't just like you closing your eyes earlier. You see, his whole frame of reference is different. He has never experienced the colors of this world. How would you explain colors to someone like him? And he is completely dependent on charity. You know, there's no Malaysian association for the blind equivalent in ancient Palestine. So he slightly stationed himself near the temple area, and that's where the disciples notice him. And notice how they perceive him. Verse 2. And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And instead of looking at him as a person to whom they can act justly and show mercy, they use him as a subject to show off their ability to do theology. You can just imagine them, you know, stroking their beards, looking a bit learned as they contemplate the complex question of the agency of sin. See, like most Jews of their day, they assume a tight connection between sin and suffering. If you are born blind, that means that you or your parents must have sinned in some way. But Jesus insists differently. You see, he doesn't deny that the disciples' options are valid. Suffering could be a consequence of sin, be it the blind man or the parents. 
But the New Testament tells us that it doesn't have to be the case. So, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul tells us that he has been given a thorn in the flesh, not because of sin, but to keep him from becoming proud. So we should be very cautious about drawing a direct link between sin and suffering. And Jesus doesn't. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. For the disciples, they viewed the man's blindness as an indication of divine displeasure. Jesus saw it as an opportunity for undeserved favor to show grace. God's work is to be displayed in this blind man, and Jesus is revealing himself in all his grace and truth. And as a short aside, this should be a reminder to us that we always deal with real people, not abstractions. And so we must beware of the danger of falling into theological debates that are divorced from love of Jesus and of others. It's not that theology is unimportant. Clearly, it is of supreme importance. Theology is about knowing God, and we are doing theology even as we are looking at John chapter 9 right now. And certainly the danger for some is to look down on or to mock theology. But I suspect the danger for us at SMAC lies in the opposite direction. Theology becomes mere theory. Now, we'll be having a doctrine seminar of the Trinity in a few weeks' time, and I hope that many of you will come. But the danger, though, is precisely in talking about the Trinity merely as an abstract theoretical doctrine, when actually the Trinity is the identity of God himself. So theology is personal. What we believe matters. And what we believe matters. Our beliefs affect our views of the world, how we treat others, everything. And it has an effect on how Jesus and his disciples treated this blind man. But back to the passage. Not only does Jesus see the opportunity, he sees the urgency, the spot. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. See, the time is short. God is here. His kingdom is here. The servant king is here. The Messiah is here. But not for long. See, in a world without electricity, the laborer is unable to work at night. So he must take full advantage of daylight. And likewise, Jesus' hour, when he goes to the cross, it's coming. So he must take full advantage of exercising his earthly ministry. Verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He must be the light of the world who exposes, who guides, who judges, who saves. Now that doesn't mean that those 
who see Jesus, who see the truth, the truth about God, about themselves, and those who trust in him, will lose the light when Jesus leaves the earth. Uh, just one page before, on page 1078, John 8 verse 12 tells us this. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus performs this miracle. This is verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sand. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now there's plenty of speculation as to Jesus' chosen method of healing. You know, the early church father, Irenaeus, who lived in the second century, he reckons he has something to do with Genesis and the way God created. Or John Calvin, the great pastor theologian of the 16th century, he thinks that Jesus is making the blindness even more intense so as to magnify the cure. And some modern com- commentators, they think that it might have something to do with the fact that some modern some Jews during that time uh, believed that saliva had healing properties. But whatever the case, the really important thing is that the man is healed. You know, I just saw I saw a news news report recently just about a scientific breakthrough uh, in terms of curing blindness, and it all sounded very complicated. You know, you have to regenerate some sort of stem cells and make grow stuff in the lab, and somehow they become this special contact lens, and then you put it in, and it helps you see partially, somewhat. How does this blind man see? Jesus just spits and applies. And notice that it's all on Jesus' initiative. The blind man doesn't ask for healing. In fact, he might not even be aware that healing is available. That's how blind he is. But he obeys the one sent from the Father. Is himself sent to the pool of Siloam, which we are told means sent, and comes back seeing. How does the blind man see? Jesus has done it. Here is the love and power of Jesus in action. But that's far from the end of the story, is it? And John now tells us about the interrogation of the sign. The interrogation of the sign. And that's the bulk of this passage from verses 8 to 38. John now allows us to overhear bits and pieces of dialogue as everyone tries to work out how is it that this blind man sees. And more than that, John wants to teach us about spiritual sight and blindness as we eavesdrop on these conversations. And these conversations mainly center around knowing and not knowing. So notice the repetition of the phrases, I know, we know, or I do not know. We do not know throughout the passage. Verse 12, I do not know. Verse 20, we know. Verse 21, we do not know, nor do we know. Verse 24, we know. Verse 25, I do not know. I do know. Verse 29, 30, 31, we know. We do not know. You do not know. 
And indeed, John seems to be engaging in wordplay throughout. He actually uses a variety of Greek words for the word translated see in our English translations. And one of those words can also be translated as no. So who truly sees God? Who truly knows Jesus? Well, let's find out. So firstly, do the neighbors know? Do the neighbors know? And that's verses 8 to 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how will your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now most of you will know this, but I have an older brother and my brother and I look alike. Uh, he's five years older than me. And once when I was young, my mom was just bringing me along somewhere with me uh, in tow. And then she ran into a friend of hers who hadn't seen me for a long time, seen us for a long time. And seeing me, she was like, oh, it's so cute, you know. And then, and then she asked my mom, oh, you know, hey, who's your youngest one? And then my mom said, oh, no, this is my youngest. And then she insisted, no, this one is the bigger one. You got another smaller one, you got a younger one. And this went on for a while until my mom finally convinced her that I was indeed the youngest. Now you would have thought that my mom knew best. Unless, you know, there was some mysterious younger brother on the side, which I hope not. But something like that was going on here. You see, the neighbors are fighting among themselves. You know, this is the blind man. No, it's just someone who looks like him. And the formerly blind man keeps saying, Guys, it's, it's really me, really. And you would have thought he knew best. And finally they listen to him. And naturally they want to know the details. And the man's reply in verses 10 to 12 is very striking in its matter of factness. You know, he does not exaggerate. He just tells it as it is. His words closely resemble John's in verses 6 and 7. So when they ask him where Jesus is, he answers truthfully, I don't know, even though it must be a bit embarrassing to admit that the guy who just healed you, you don't know where he is. Now, earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus has told us about those who bear witness to him. For example, in John 5, you know, people like John the Baptist and the Old Testament Scriptures. And in John 8, he tells us about the authenticity of his own witness, his testimony to himself. Now, Jesus is not in the picture here, but he doesn't need to be. He has already shown evidence that he is the Son of God. But now, he has another witness, the formerly blind man. And by his straight talking, he establishes his credibility. He is a trustworthy witness. However, at this point in the story, although the blind man is trustworthy, we know that he doesn't know too much. He knows he's been healed, but he doesn't know his healer apart from his name. And the neighbors at the moment can only rely on this man's testimony. 
So do the neighbors know? They clearly don't. They don't see. And so naturally they go, Aha, I know, we don't know, so we'll bring him to the experts. And that's verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And so we come to the next question. Secondly, do the Pharisees know? Do the Pharisees know? Verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now as soon as John mentions the word Sabbath in verse 14, we should immediately hear the alarm bells. The the Pharisees definitely hear them. Red alert! Red alert! Sabbath breaker on the loose! You know, warning, warning, repeat offender! And that's all they can hear. You know, never mind the miracle, Jesus has broken the law. So they haul up the star witness himself. Verse 15. And they ask him how he can see. And like he did with the neighbors, the formerly blind man simply tells the truth. You know, he put mud in my eyes, and I wash, and I see. And here is an occasion for praise and wonder. The Pharisees can only condemn and slander. Verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Here's some Pharisee logic for you. On the screen, premise one. No man from God breaks the Sabbath. Premise two. In our judgment, Jesus has broken the Sabbath. I mean, come on, he made mud. Conclusion. Jesus cannot be a man from God. And here's some more Pharisee logic for you, but from a different starting point. So verse 16 again. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Premise 1. Jesus performed a miraculous sign. Premise 2. Sinners cannot perform such signs. Natural conclusion? Jesus isn't a sinner. He's from God. However, Pharisee logic dictates that such a conclusion must be wrong. And so now some of them are confused. You know, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So the Jews are divided. Do the Pharisees know? No, they don't. And he sense the fruitlessness of the entire debate. You know, as they discuss round and round in circles about how this blind man sees, ironically, they themselves can't see. They're blind. They're in darkness. There's no light. They don't know. And I think the temptation for us today is to look at the Pharisees and laugh. You see, we see their blindness. But really, we should be asking, could we possibly be in danger of being just as blind? Think about the convoluted logic we sometimes employ to avoid the clear commands of God. You know, God, I know the Bible says that we should be honest, we should have integrity. But, come on, the Bible's an ancient book, isn't it? 
Well, the guys who wrote it don't know anything about the modern world and its pressures. The guys who wrote it didn't live in Malaysia. You know, so much corruption. But yeah, we have to be realistic lah. You know, sometimes I just, I just have to pay that bribe. Sometimes I just have to change that number on the sheet. Sometimes I just have to close one eye. Otherwise, how can anything get done? You know, how is my business going to survive? Okay, I know, I know you tell me to trust you, that you will provide, that you will vindicate the righteous. But didn't you say I should be responsible for my family? Isn't this being responsible for my family? Is that you? Or think about the ways in which we try to interrogate God. No, God is supposed to be about love. Well then, explain to me all about the existence of hell. God? How do you expect me to believe that the Bible is God's word? It's been written 2,000 years ago. We're not talking about honest questions or honest wrestling with God here. We're talking about trying to evade God and trying to escape Jesus' claim to be Lord over all our lives. Now, the German pastor, Dietrich von Heifer, once wrote, The devil says, keep on posing problems and you will escape the necessity of obedience. Keep on posing problems and you will escape the necessity of obedience. So we need to ask ourselves, are there any ways in which we are trying to avoid Jesus today? If so, then God is speaking to you today. Remember the grace of Jesus. So submit to Him as you are. Now the Pharisees, having debated among themselves, now turn back to the blind man and ask him again about Jesus in verse 17. And his reply is simple, because it's the truth. Jesus is a prophet. In other words, he is from God. And the Jews, they still can't accept this. So they think, okay, let's call on his parents in verse 18 to 19. So now, thirdly, do the parents know? Do the parents know? Well, here's what they do know. Verse 20. Yes, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind. But here's what they don't know. Verse 21. Nope. No idea how he sees. No. No idea who opened his eyes. Oops! A slip up. You see, the parents do know at least some of the details because they knew that someone opened his eyes. So why are they not willing to admit that? And verse 22 tells us. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So they tried to avoid responsibility. So they say in verse 21 and 23 as well, Don't, don't ask me. Ask my son. The parents do see, but they have chosen to be willfully blind. And so naturally, we have to ask ourselves, is that the attitude we take sometimes? We, we know Jesus. We know what would most please Him. 
but we try to shut him up. We're, we're scared, you see. We're scared what our colleagues, our friends, our family would think. We don't want to be labelled as an extremist or as someone out of touch, and so we don't try to act too Christianly in public. Or we don't want to lose our religious standing, and so we don't challenge what we know to be clearly false teaching. But perhaps, perhaps what we're most scared of is we're scared that God will not come true for us. You see, we're scared that if we actually do trust Him and listen to Him, when He tells us to do good to those who hate you, when He says to be generous to your Christian brothers and sisters, when He says flee from sexual temptation, we're scared that we'll find ourselves being disappointed, that we're just missing out on the best, that when we pay the price, that price is just meaningless. And that might have been how the parents felt. And so they choose to play it safe. You know, ask my son, the blind man. Hmm, he knows. Don't, don't, don't ask me, we don't know. We choose not to see. And so fourthly, again, do the Pharisees know? Do the Pharisees know? And that's back in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, give glory to God is a particular Pharisee way of saying, Come on now, tell us the real truth. Give us the real story. Tell us what really happened. You can't expect us to believe that Jesus really did this. They are blind, and now they are becoming even more stubborn in their blindness. See, all their energy is now spent trying to work out how Jesus is not from God. And the blind man must be getting really frustrated. But once again, he simply restates the truth. Verse 25. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. But they keep pressing him in verse 26. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answers in verse 27 with a mixture of earnestness and frustration. He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And now the Pharisees openly mock him. Verse 28 and 29. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. You know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, why? We don't know where he comes from. And they're behaving childishly now. You know, we follow Jesus. Well, we follow Moses. And God's with Moses for sure. We know that. This Jesus, he's a nobody. Uh, it's a little bit like, imagine James. He's got a Manchester United shirt there. And he's saying, though Jake's not here, unfortunately. But that's it. And that's it. He's saying to Jake, whom some of you know. He says to Jake, Oh, you follow Arsenal. Guess what? I follow Manchester United, clearly the superior team. You know, I hate to be an Arsenal fan. So, Arsenal are playing pretend, but many are the real champions. And the Pharisees are saying, you know, Jesus is playing pretend, well, Moses is the real deal. 
But now the blind man responds with a devastating argument. So remember Pharisee logic earlier? Now we get blind man logic in verses 30 to 33. So again on the screens to follow the blind man logic. Premise 1. God doesn't listen to sinners. Premise 1b, the other side. God listens to him who does his will. And the blind man is probably thinking of scriptures like Proverbs 15 verse 29, which affirms this. Premise 2. God listened to Jesus and opened my blind eyes. So conclusion? Jesus must be from God. God listened to him. If not, he could do nothing. Ironic, isn't it? The blind man sees the clearest. And so the Pharisees do the mature thing. La 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 la, we can't hear you, we can't hear you. You see, they have no answer. So they attack the blind man instead, in verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. It's pride and prejudice. It's blindness, utter blindness. shocking, isn't it, to see that? You see, confronted with the truth, they close their eyes tighter and tighter. And that tells us that no matter how clearly, how patiently, how faithfully we present the truth about Jesus to others, sometimes that will be the response. See, these are people who are intelligent in every way, people who are religious in every way. And yet they reject Jesus. They close their eyes tighter and tighter. Now perhaps there are some of you today, here, who will not call yourself Christians. And you want to close your eyes tighter and tighter. And God is saying, don't. Don't do that. See, Jesus is the light of the world. So let yourself be drawn to Him. Of course, many of us call ourselves Christians today, but we still need to ask if we are in danger of allowing ourselves to slip into blindness. You see, are there areas in which we are closing our eyes? You know, perhaps there is a carelessness about God that wasn't there before. It's not that you are actively resisting God, but it's just that such things, some things were not, are not such a big deal to you anymore. So, you know, you don't feel bad if you don't read your Bible regularly because, hey, you know, Christians are not legalists. Our prayer is just about moving our lips and not about communicating with our Heavenly Father, with our loving God. Or maybe there's no longer a sense in which we're feeling weak and needing to be dependent on God. You know, I I can stand on my own two feet. Isn't that what God wants? We used to know that Jesus is from God. But maybe now that has become a meaningless phrase. Because in our day-to-day living, we just show that we don't know where he comes from. So are there warning signs of spiritual blindness in our lives? And if so, go and seek the healer himself. There's one more person to consider. So fifthly, does the blind man know? Does the blind man know? And he doesn't really, we saw earlier. In verse 11, he knows that this is the man called Jesus, but that's it. 
But as the narrative progresses, his sight becomes clearer and clearer. So in verse 17, he says that Jesus is the prophet, a man from God. In verses 27 to 28, he regards himself as a disciple of Jesus. In verse 33, he clearly believes that this man is not a sinner, but from God. And now, in verses 35 to 38, Jesus reappears on the scene. Let me just read that. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Once again, it's Jesus who finds him, not the other way around. And Jesus reveals himself to be the Son of Man, a title that he's already used in John's Gospel. So through the Son of Man, people encounter God. That's what we see in John 1 verse 51. Through the death of the Son of Man, those who believe will have eternal life. That's 3 verse 15. And through the exalted Son of Man, there will be judgment. That's 5 verse 27. Jesus is the Son of Man. The blind man sees, the blind man knows, the blind man believes. And verse 38, he falls down and worships him. It's not just received physical sight. More significantly, he has received spiritual sight. And John 3 verse 21 says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Jesus opens our eyes, and by faith we come to Jesus and trust in him. And it is all God's doing. Okay, we're nearly at the end, and the passage concludes with the explanation of the sign. The explanation of the sign, verse 39 to 41. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now this might seem a bit puzzling at first, because didn't Jesus say before that he would come to save the world? So why does he say now that he has come into the world for judgment? Well, the two statements are not opposed to each other. Now, some of you might know the wind cave in Bau in Sarawak. And you know, it's a tourist attraction of sorts. And basically, when you enter the cave, it's completely pitch black. And you can't see a single thing. But suppose someone comes along with a torch. So now you can see. You're not blind. And by faith, you follow the torch along the right path. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But what if the torch shines directly into your eyes? The light is there, but you still can't see. You're blinded. Jesus is the light of the world, 
uh, his light will have different effects on different people. To achieve his purposes, he must expose our spiritual blindness. Some will recognize their blindness and turn to Jesus in faith. Some won't, and their spiritual blindness is simply confirmed. Worse still, they think they can see. And that is what Jesus means in his reply to the Pharisees in verses 40 to 41. The Pharisees arrogantly think that they can see. They know it all. But tragically, that only proves how blind they are. Amazing grace, what is that sound that didn't do a thing for me? I never was lost, so wouldn't be found. Never blind, so I wouldn't see. Have you seen the light? Let's conclude. H.G. Wells, he's famous for writing War of the Worlds. It was made into a movie a few years ago. It had Tom Cruise in it. He once wrote a short story called The Country of the Blind. And the main character, he's climbing up a mountain, and then he slips, and then he falls all the way down into a valley. And there he discovers a country of sorts, whose people are healthy in every way, except that they are blind. Now, when one of the villagers try to lead him by the hand to go to somewhere, he tells them, no, no, it's okay, I can see. But the villagers don't understand. See? What's that? And another says, no, his senses are imperfect. He speaks meaningless words. Later on, when he tries to teach the villagers about sight, one villager says, what is blind? The hero fails in every way. You see, the story ends with him trying to escape the valley. He's given up on the people. But he dies in the mountains. Now, there is a revised ending which is slightly more hopeful, in which he warns the villagers about a coming rock slide. But they laugh at him. He survives, but everyone else perishes. We are the country of the blind. We think we are healthy in every way. But we are spiritually blind. We don't even know that we cannot see. Jesus has entered the country of the blind. And Jesus, the hero of the Bible story, is not like the hero of H.G. Wells' story. See, he didn't slip into this country. He chose to come himself. He dies. But his death is not a failure. In fact, he succeeds in every way. He is the light of the world who restores sight to the spiritually blind. And he has come to warn us about a coming judgment. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 tells us, For God who said, Let light shine our darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God knows our every guilt, our shame, our weaknesses. He says, come, come and truly know me. Come and know me as the one who is rich in mercy. Come know me as the one who is ever willing to forgive. 
Come know me as the Heavenly Father who wants to give good gifts to you. Come know me who will never leave you alone. Come know me, the one for whom you were made for. Come know me through Jesus, the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, we pray that even over the last 40 minutes or so, we pray that you would even uh, you have been working to open our blind eyes. And so, Lord, we do pray, Lord, that uh, if there are any areas in which we are just choosing to close our eyes, please, Lord, will you stop us from resisting any longer? But would you open our eyes once again? And we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, who in his infinite grace, in his infinite mercy, uh, gave us sight uh, to see you and to know you. So help us to love you truly. Help us uh, to remember that Jesus is the light of the world who restores our plans. In Jesus' most precious name we pray. Amen.